Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of a changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, February the 14th. It is Happy Valentine's Day. It's happy for you if you didn't screw it up anyway, if you live in a place where you need to not screw it up. Anyway, this is episode 2600 of the Expert Council. So it seems like it's just yesterday that we had episode 2500. It's like 100 episodes just flew by. I think it's kind of cool that with having to do some rewinds this week and whatnot and fitting in the interview show on Wednesday, that somehow we ended up on a Friday with an expert council show with a landmark number episode 2600. It will be no time at all, I think, where we'll be like, wow, we're at episode 3000. And then you can call me Mr. 3000 if you remember that old movie with uh, Bernie Mac in it. Anyway, with that, before we uh, get into this, let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. Let's uh, talk about the Expert Council lineup I got for you today. I reached out and said, Dear Expert Council, it's only Monday night. That's, that's when I sent this email. Please help me. I need to have everything done for this week by Tuesday. So if you could send me stuff in the morning, that would be great. And many of them did. They got out of the park, piker tree. Here's what we got for you today. Dealing with native vines while establishing a food forest. Jeff Lawton of CBD and your pets from Doc Kelly, our veterinarian on staff. The ins and outs of entry-level thermal rifle scopes with J.R. Haley. I don't really know that it's being presented as entry-level, but the budget makes it entry-level. Thermal scopes are expensive. Uh, Nick Ferguson using straw versus wood mulch for food forest establishment. And the legs of the stool of happiness from Gary Collins. Does Octane have any effect on engines overheating with Derek Aban Pietro? A lightning round of 401k's retirement planning and income preservation with the man himself, John Pugliano. And I'm going to end today with why 12 years of TSP has turned me into a perennial optimist. I have always been the person who has been like, don't freak out. Prepping is about empowerment. That's always been me. But that has become nothing but more true over the years. And I think it's actually cost me. It's cost me some of my following because some of you want to be freaked out. I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't want to be freaked out and why you shouldn't be freaked out and why you should be just incredibly optimistic about our future. That doesn't mean you don't prepare because shit happens. But it also means by preparing for shit to happen, you're able to deal with shit when it happens. And overall, there's a pretty optimistic future out there for all of us, even though there's some tough times as we travel through this journey we all call life. We will get to all of that and more in just a minute. Before we do, let's hear... Our quote of the day, uh, this is from Thomas Aquinas, who was a philosopher, a friar, a Catholic priest, hung out in the 1200s, I believe like 1225 to like 1257, so 1270-something. He was uh, a little over 50 years old when he checked out. This is what he said about liberty. At least we think that the concepts of liberty espoused in the founding of the United States were new. Because again, this is the year 1200-ish. There are 1250-ish, I guess you'd say this was said. By nature, all men are equal in liberty, but not in other endowments. This is our problem in our world today, in my opinion, that we have sought to render men equal in all ways rather than to treat them equally. Those are two entirely different agendas. First of all, let me say this. As, a, as an honest man, I do not believe that all men will be treated equally. 
And when I say all men, yes, I know you guys believe in 87 genders. I'm including women. There's two. That's how many there are. I'm including everybody. When I say all men, I'm talking about humans. Human, okay? So all men should be treated equally, but they won't be. We must accept that is not the case because it's never going to be the case. That should be the goal. That should be the goal. Just as an anarchist, I am for the principle of non-aggression. I do not believe that everybody will ever follow the principle of non-aggression. It does not mean it's not a worthy goal. It does not mean it is not going to be the litmus test by which I judge myself. So I shall endeavor to treat all men equally. And I will send that message out that everybody should. And I will accept that if you are rich, you have a better chance of beating a, 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 a criminal charge than somebody who is poor. No matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, all men shall not be treated equally, but they should be. And that should be the goal. But we cannot render them equal. We cannot render them equal. And that's where the two things meet. That's where they collide with each other. Because most people that have more either worked harder or worked smarter or both. Yes, I know. There's the trust fund babies and shit. Are you one? No. Do you have one that lives next door to you taking your shit from you? No, then shut up. Most people who have more in our world today work harder or work smarter or both. And many of them are just more talented or they are smarter. And that gives them certain advantages. And it is not our duty as a society to render men equal. That's Harrison Bergeron. If you don't know that, look it up. Harrison Bergeron. Look for the one that's about an hour and 45 minutes long. You can find the entire thing on YouTube and watch it. It was put out by Showtime in the 1990s, and then it disappeared like a fart in the wind because nobody wanted to talk about it. Okay, what's his name? Sean Austin or whatever. Sean something. The guy that played Rudy, he's the actor in it. Pretty good-sized actor for a film that big. It just disappeared. Just disappeared. It is the responsibility of government to render men equal. It is not the responsibility of anyone to render them equal. God did not make all men equal. He made all of us drastically unequal in innumerable ways. And anybody has a problem with that. So you're saying that I'm equal to Michael Jordan in my ability to play basketball. I mean, he's an old man now. You'd think he could, you know, I could spot him a few points and we'd come out. No? No? Oh, okay. So I'm equal in looks to somebody like Brad Pitt? No? Now you've seen me? That's why I do radio instead of video? Yeah? No? And that's just, it's just a couple examples right off the cuff. But I guarantee you there are things that I am way better at than Michael Jordan. There are things that I am way better at than Brad Pitt. We're not equal. I don't pretend to be equal to anybody, and I don't pretend that anybody is equal to me. In almost every measurable way, If you put two people together and you judge them in a single criteria, one of them is superior to the other. That is a fundamental reality. And you know what? I'm going to save everything else on that for the end of the show because it's part of why I'm an optimist. I believe it's one of our greatest strengths. I think if society, if, if all were equal in endowment, we'd have been gone as a species a long time ago. We'd have been dead a long time ago. There would have been no Orville and Wilbur Wright. There would not have been a man trip to the moon. There would have been no Einstein if we were all equal. Anybody that wishes for us all to be equal is a psychopath, a psychosociopath that knows it cannot happen and simply wishes for us to be rendered equal so that they might be in charge. Anyway, 
better things. Let's talk about something else that makes me an optimist. How many of you are planting trees? Whether it's a few in a backyard, whether it's a full-on full food forest, no matter what it is. The fact that people today plant trees is one reason I'm an optimist. And people that plant trees with the intent not only to have a tree, but to have a forest they can shepherd. Whether it be a food forest or just a forest. That also gives me a lot of hope. We got somebody trying to do that in Arkansas with some concern about some native vines. We have reached out to Jeff Lawton for an answer of what to do about those vines. Don't be surprised if he tells you, well, not much at all. Here we go. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And I have a question here coming from a listener who's uh, got a problem with vines um, in northwest Arkansas. And um, he wants to develop the property with swales um, and uh, terraces. Most of it's treed. Um, and um, this, uh, uh, um, uh, vines are going right the way up the, the, the trees. Um, Personally, I wouldn't worry about the vines. I'd just work around it. I'm going to just work with it. looks like you've got to take some trees out to put the swales in and take some trees out to put the terraces in. Um, I expect that you're in a, um, a, a natural ecosystem of vines, and um, um, if you take them out, another vine's going to move into position. Um, once you've got your earthworks in, I'd, I'd start to... Um, plant vines that are, you know, more valuable than the one that's there. Uh, cut those guys off at the bottom, leave them up, up the trees, and they'll slowly come down anyway. And um, start to um, just just cut them off at the ground. And when they grow new shoots, cut them off again. Everything dies if you, if you don't let it grow leaves. But what I'm saying is you probably find it's a forest that needs vines anyway. It's a, some kind of a natural vine forest. Um, and get some useful vines up there, like your uh, native grapevines and things like that. Um, and, and any local useful vine, food species, of course, would be a preference, probably. Um, but I wouldn't panic about the vines. They're just an indicator of what type of forest you've got. Um, just because they're not native doesn't mean they're not in function um, doing what needs to be done in that particular forest. So I, I, would, I would plan on, on your other earthworks that you mentioned, uh, swells and terraces. And then um, when, when you're ready, um, just like I say, cut the vines off close to the ground, uh, leave, leave everything else up the tree. They'll all just like die down and drop down and slow release organic matter to the ground. Uh, keep your eye on those cut vines. When they regrow shoots, cut them off. Cut them off once a month or once every three months. They'll soon die. And uh, plant some vines to replace them that are more valuable to There you go. And if I might suggest, if you wanted a vine that was valuable, that would grow well in Arkansas, one might look to the muscadine. In fact, one might just look around and find many muscadines growing that can easily be cloned and planted wherever you want them. I would also say I, I do not mind vines in trees at all. I don't like vines on trees that are too young to handle the vine. Vines and trees go together like peanut butter and jelly. They belong together. That's one of our seven layers of the forest is the vining layer. We can replace them with vines that are uh, more productive, and that's fine. But once a tree is sufficient size, if the vine is no longer a threat to the tree, I don't have any problem with the vine growing. Uh, in fact, I think that in many instances, the tree and the vine will both be healthier for having each other. I believe that plants like this grow in a symbiotic relationship and they share nutrient through exudate exchange. Exudates are the little secretions that come out of the root systems below the surface. 
And I think a lot of the things that go on for symbiotic relationships between plants are something we don't see, and they happen below the soil level. So I'll just that'll be my addition. With that, let's hear from Doc Kelly on CBD-infused pet treats. And then I'll tell you my experience with CBD and my, well, dog timers victim, uh, uh, Max, the, the giant German shepherd. I believe he has what I can only call dog timers now, which would be Alzheimer's in the, in the world of dogs. Hi, Jack and all TSP listeners. This is Dr. Kelly here to answer your furry pet questions. And today's question is, what are your opinions on CBD-infused treats or food for dogs, and how would you recommend them for best use? Details. I have a six-and-a-half-year-old female boxer who is allergic to the world. Those were our vet's exact words after getting her allergy tested at six months old. After much trial and error in medication, food, stem cell therapy, etc., we've settled the past few years on a daily maintenance dose of Apoquil pills for itch relief and Hesca allergy serum drops under her tongue. Unfortunately, several times a year, it seems this reg- regime isn't enough, and she will have intensive itching and scratching for a few weeks. Would CBD-infused products or adding oil directly to her food be something that may help in the situation? What other things do I need to be considering, and what other questions should I be asking? Also, a quick side note for all the listeners with pets, look into pet insurance. It has literally been the single factor that has taken the financial decision out of our pets' care decisions, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Thank you, Doc Kelly, for your insight and perspective. Respectfully, Joshua. Okay. First, Joshua, it's awesome that you got pet insurance early on with an allergy dog. It can make a huge difference for these dogs and cats since this is a lifelong problem for them. Getting her allergy tested was also a good move. As a quick aside, sometimes they do have to be retested as they um, age and time goes by and new serum combinations made based on how their allergies are progressing and to see if they've become allergic to something new. So that's something to consider, too, if she hasn't been skin tested at the dermatologist since her initial appointment. So the real question you asked about was CBD, and that is a total confusing hotbed of information. There's a couple of main points that I'll highlight, though. The first is that there is only one cannabinoid product that is FDA-approved, which is Epidiolex for refractory seizures in kids. This particular medication can be prescribed by a vet because it's the only cannabinoid that was changed by the DEA from a Schedule 1 drug, think drugs like heroin, to a Schedule 5, which, while requiring licensing and documentation and everything, can still be prescribed. It could feasibly be prescribed by a vet for seizures for a dog or cat, but it's very expensive and difficult to get a hold of. So what about all the other CBD products just available at the store? Well, here's where it gets complicated. According to the DEA, a veterinarian cannot legally dispense or prescribe CBD to a pet or patient, and a veterinarian cannot instruct a client to purchase CBD products. Even in states where marijuana has been legalized for medical or medical usage allowed, it doesn't apply at all to veterinary medicine. Now, this makes dealing with all the CBD supplements a disaster. I mean, technically, they shouldn't be allowed to make medical claims on supplements, but they often do anyway. And it's extremely difficult to know if what you're getting actually has any CBD in it or in what amount. And even when it does have it, in animals, the dosages are basically wags, which is just wild-ass guesses, because no actual research has been done on it. I think a day will come when discussion and prescription of CBD is eventually allowed in vet med, because it's just a matter of really of sorting out the legal kabuki between state and federal laws, the DEA and the FDA, and trying to get that all sorted out and everybody on agreement on it. And all this regulation that we currently have with it is making the study of it challenging because until we get some really good 
double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trials to prove what works and what doesn't. It's really just anecdotal evidence for what's working. Now, it would be great if some of the claims panned out, um, but I doubt that every single one will. Um, it's really become the panacea of the hour with extraordinary claims without extraordinary evidence currently backing it up. So we have no real studies also on how CBD may affect the processing of other drugs in animals. While it can alter the P450 enzyme in the liver, which is involved in the clearance of lots of drugs, we aren't sure exactly how much it will affect animals since they can process some drugs differently than people. It may end up not being a huge deal, but there are some that it's known to prolong how long the drugs stay in their system. Basically, all of this is as frustrating to veterinarians as it is to everyone else, but it's the current situation. In regards to what else you can do for your dog during these itchy bouts, a couple thoughts. One, infections secondary to allergies can cause worse itching and increasing the frequencies of baths to multiple times a week with a medicated shampoo or sometimes bleach baths can really cut down on the infections. Duoxo, spelled D-U-O-X-O, also makes a leave-on mousse that's antibacterial and antifungal that can help for times when you don't want to do a full bath. And that can be, um, you can get that one over the counter. Now, I would also consider having the dermatologist retest or to check for new allergies, especially if you notice that bouts are occurring with increasing frequency. So it's something to ask them about anyway. I hope this hasn't muddied the waters too much for everybody. Um, and thank you for your question. I look forward to the day when I can give an even more detailed response to it. And we hopefully have some more information to back it up. Again, thanks for your question. And remember, everyone, while I'm a veterinarian, I'm not your veterinarian, so my answers are just intended to give you a ballpark estimate of what your vet may recommend. Thanks, Jack, and hope everyone has a great weekend. Bye. I seldom disagree with my expert council members, but I vehemently disagree with several points made here. Vehemently. I played it. That way you can take both sides of this and make your own decisions. The concept that it's difficult to know how much CBD is in any given substance or any given supplement is absolute, 100%, pushed by both medical and veterinary doctors, apparently, total effing bullshit. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't such supplements where you don't really know. But most reputable CBD dealers will tell you exactly how much is in there, and they will provide you a certificate that, that, that absolutely shows per batch what was in there, and then you can look at how much percentage went in against the total. For instance, our provider um, from Hemp Magic provides all of that, including for the pet formulas. The pet formulas are drastically reduced amounts, Okay. But you can you know exactly what's in there. Exactly, 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 exactly. And this pisses me off a bit, and it ain't personal toward Kelly. It is toward the medical establishment's level of freaking bullshit and your absolute compulsion with what the FDA says. Now, I totally get, hey, I'm a vet, and they say I can't say anything about this. Okay, fine. Then don't say things that aren't true. Don't say things that you don't know because you haven't learned them because they're not true because you're wrong. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And one more time, and this is more toward medical doctors than Dr. Kelly here, you're effing wrong about this. You have no idea what you're talking about because you're so busy with your head shoved up the ass of the pharmaceutical reps that come into your office, you have not even bothered to learn. Okay? This is my experience with Hemp Magic's product of CBD for dogs. I was skeptical about this, though I'm happy to use it on myself. Dogs have a much more sensitive system, which, by the way, the founder of Hemp Magic will tell you that, uh, to, to, to cannabinoids than humans do. 
okay? I don't give a shit what the FDA says about anything anymore. I really don't. Especially when it comes to something like this that there is no place for at the table. And I'm going to be fair. Kelly said at some point we might have this discussion. Okay, then you guys have that discussion when we get there, and the rest of us, the adults in the room that actually use this stuff safely and have been using this stuff for thousands of years, we'll have the other discussion while you'll go off somewhere else and, and give each other back rubs in Honolulu, Hawaii. Again, I'm back really more on the medical doctors here than the veterinarians. I think the veterinarians have been totally pushed out of this, and they, they just don't know. I think medical doctors, you have a responsibility to know what you don't know. And I've, I've heard this from MDs left and right. You don't know shit, but you talk shit because, well, that's what you do. All right? My experience with my dog, anyway, is we have this old German Shepherd, and he is absolutely lost his mind at some point. He just He's not sure what he wants anymore. And he'll have anxiety issues and things like that. He will bark to go outside. And in two seconds, he barks to come inside. In two more seconds, he barks to go outside. He drives us nuts. A couple times, it's been worse than that. He's, like, walked into our bedroom, stood in the corner, couldn't figure out what to do, and barked for help. Go get him. Bring him out of there. Not sure what to do. Doesn't know to turn around. And we don't use it a lot, but when he starts having episodes like this, we'll give him the recommended dosage, which is exactly the amount that it says it is on the bottle and exactly the amount that the certified laboratory certificate says that it is. Can you tell this pisses me off a little bit? Because it's misinformation. This shit about you can't tell, you don't know, it's bull-effing shit. Got it? Bull-effing shit. It's exactly what it says. Certificate from a third-party laboratory that says it is what it says. Every bit as valid as any of the crap that anybody prescribes with a pen and pad. Okay? When we give that to him, do you know what he does? Within a few minutes, he chills out, he can lay down, he can be himself again. That's what it does. Will it help with the problem here, allergies and itching? I have no idea. Neither does Kelly, neither does anybody else know if it will help your dog. What I can tell you is if you use a certified product from a third-party lab, like the product from Hep Magic, at the dosage that's recommended, there is zero risk to your animal. And it will either work and you'll go, gee, look, it works, or you'll go, No, it doesn't work. Now, again, I want to be fair to Kelly here. Kelly doesn't know because it's been set up so that people like Kelly won't know. But I'm telling you this. If you're a doctor, a vet, any medical professional, humans, animals, otherwise, either say, I don't know, or learn. And if you feel like if you learn and you say the truth, you're risking your license and you don't want to, decline to answer these questions. It's not personal. I am tired of the misinformation and the bullshit and the lies around cannabis as a whole, including the THC stuff, the CBD stuff, all of it. It's all bull. This con and this, that's what set me off is you don't know. Yes, you do if you use a product that has a certification that says this is what it is. And let me tell you something else about this. Anybody reputably dealing this stuff, has that certification because it's the only way they prevent their ass from being thrown in federal prison. And that's the truth. Let's go on to another one. Here we go. Thermoscopes with JR. Hey, TSP. JR here with the Expert Council, answering your questions on guns, gun gear, and all things firearms related. Today's question comes in from Sean in Indiana. Sean is looking for some help in finding a firearm scope for nighttime use. He's open to either night vision or thermal, but prefers the latter. Trying to keep a budget of $1,500, 
He currently has access to and is familiar with two handheld monoculars in the form of the FLIR Scout, which is a thermal, and the Armasite Gen 2 in night vision. John, great to hear you're dabbling in the nighttime optics. Let's see if we can help you dial in a decision for a nighttime scope. First, we'll do a quick overview for everyone on the difference between night vision and thermal optics. In the simplest terms, night vision helps you navigate terrain and obstacles in the dark. Thermal vision is for threat detection or target acquisition, daytime or night. Night vision is easily defeated by rain and fog, and it needs an ambient light source or an infrared light source to be effective. If you're in an area that is pitch black with little to no lighting from street lights, house lights, the moon, or even a clear night sky with stars, you'll need to provide an infrared light source for night vision to work well. Many night vision optics have a small IR light source for this, and it can be supplemented with an IR flashlight too. So if you're looking for living things with night vision, this is important. If they are well camouflaged and not moving, they will be just as difficult to find in night vision as they are in the daytime. So night vision, again, is just best for traversing terrain and obstacle avoidance. Thermal doesn't care about the weather. It doesn't care if it's raining. It doesn't care if it's foggy. And it doesn't care if it's daytime or night. If you were trying to use it to travel at nighttime, it doesn't do very well for identifying terrain obstacles in front of you. Thermal is really for picking up living things in an environment and helping you determine if it's a threat or help you acquire a target. It isn't really for navigating. So which one of these is better for eliminating four-legged pests with a rifle? Well, we're definitely heading toward the side of thermal for that application. It's great to have both a thermal scope um, along with night vision. You can use them both at um, near each other in that application. So this is going to be good to add to your kit. As an aside, folks that use night vision for hunting, most of the time they will use an IR laser combined with that night vision optic to get their rifle on target. Whereas for what I'm talking about for Sean, you'll be more of a traditional scope with crosshairs and magnification. And Sean, you're in the right ballpark with the optics that you mentioned already. The company ATN is really the leader in the price point that you listed, and the ATN Thor LT hits that mark. And for those unfamiliar with that market, there are a lot more options to choose from once you get into a budget of like $3,000 to $8,000 for thermal scopes, which just seems really cost prohibitive to many of us that aren't using them regularly. The ATN Thor LT is a lightweight, it's light on frills, and it's a solid thermal scope. What you get with that scope is either a 3 to 6 power or 4 to 8 power optic, and it has a legit ability to do what you're asking. You'll be able to identify those targets and eliminate them where there's needed. What you don't get when you get compared to the next tier, which is that ATN Thor 4, is video recording, smartphone applications, dual streaming video for spotter, smart range finders, ballistic calculators, higher resolution sensor for thermal detection. But you already know with all those bells comes a much higher price tag. 
If you decided to step into that next year, you can get into it with an MSRP of 1999. But here is what you what really hold me back from stepping into that next tier at the very bottom. The first entry into that is a the optic is a one and a half to five power optic. While the next step in that tier is a two to eight power optic that sees a jump in MSRP from nineteen ninety nine to twenty six ninety nine. So for me, if I'm going to invest two K into thermal I know I won't be happy just with a five power optic. Around my farm, it's common to identify a coyote at 200, 300 yards when I do see them. Now, a deer at 200, 300 yards, I can be comfortable taking with no power to low power magnification. A coyote is much smaller than our Oklahoma deer, as I'm sure some of you Texas boys are giving me shit right now. When you get into smaller targets at distances, I'd have hated to know that I just needed to save up another 700 to put on top of a lifetime purchase to know that I'd have something that I'd be happy with forever. Um, and that 8 power is, is kind of like that traditional 3 to 9 power scope that many of us grew up on. That's kind of what I want if I'm engaging something that's a little bit smaller. So that's my take on whether you should extend your budget into the next tier. What ranges are you looking at and how small of a target do you need to engage? Now, if you are not dealing with ranges like that, say you're staying around 100 yards, 5 power is going to be plenty to do that. If you're in that next tier, you're also going to be getting a more sensitive sensor that's going to pick up those threats even better. But again, we're really jumping in price point. So if we're staying when it, inside 100 yards, that's likely going to be where that budget-friendly ATN Thor LT is going to shine. You'll certainly be able to identify any of the threats that you see, eliminate them. Bells and whistles are great, but if you don't get the return on investment you're looking for, then you're just kind of throwing money at something that you're not really going to be able to use too much. So, Sean, I hope this helps you wade through the options that are out there. It's tough at these price points to really dial in what lane to travel. And when you're looking at review videos and write-ups, who is just saying nice things because a company gave them a product to review and let them keep it if they say nice things, and who is giving an objective review? So I waded through several of those types of videos to kind of dial in for you for on this answer the best that I could and I'm sure you've looked at some of them yourself so best of luck Sean thermal is a big dream for many of us that love firearms and this is going to be a great addition to your kit and to your arsenal back to you Jack all right next up let's talk to Nick Ferguson about using straw for a mulch for establishment of trees rather than wood chips Nick take it away Hey there, TSP listeners. Nick Ferguson here from HomegrownLiberty.com and RarePlantStore.com. And I have a question from Ben. And his question is, would hay serve as a viable alternative to wood chips for converting my lawn into a forest? 
Details. I live in South Central Louisiana. Have a very large yard. I'd like to start converting my yard into a food forest. I've been on the chip drop waiting list for over a year, hoping to get free, affordable wood chips without any luck. My yard is simply too big to be able to afford to cover it with purchased wood mulch. However, hay bales are very affordable and abundant. Would hay serve as a viable alternative to wood chips? And if so, what would be your suggested procedure? Thank you very much, Ben. All right. Well, yes, you can, but are you willing to deal with the potential drawbacks? And the worst drawbacks are twofold, having Bermuda grass growing and choking out your trees and the more dangerous problem of systemic herbicides. And those are things like curtail, which is 2,4-D and clopyrrolid, I think is how it's pronounced, forefront, which is aminopyrrolid and 2,4-D, grazon of any kind, that's uh, either aminopyrrolid or piclorum and 2,4-D, milestone, redeem, surmount. There's tons of them that are systemic. And all of these are notorious for staying active on your hay and even staying active through the manure of ruminants. I've had this happen to me. I used some hay and uh, I used it as mulch and nothing would grow in there. Just absolutely nothing would grow. I killed tons of things. In that hay mulch. Uh, it takes several years to decay, and honestly, they're my biggest concern in this whole situation. You can deal with the Bermuda grass by outcompeting it for light and mulching it to death, as well as very selective targeting of the growing tips with a grass killing herbicide. I've used tiny amounts of herbicide on a cloth glove that was put over a double layer of nitrile glove on my hand. The cloth glove gets wet with the herbicide. And then you simply grab and wipe the grass blades with the wet glove, and it dies. The end result is an infinitesimal amount of herbicide being used to get the job done. And I would not use a systemic herbicide for that, of course. It's quick and easy. It really does work. This is only necessary when you're not able to outcompete the grass by dumping more hay on top of anything green. So if you keep it up, you can end up just piling up enough hay that it really will choke it out. However, you're really just restarting the next layer, which will sprout too. If it's kept moist, it'll sprout roots and shoots. So the good news is, if you start with fast-growing trees, think hybrid poplar, hybrid willow, white mulberry, and those canopy out and shade out the new forest floor, then you have it beat because Bermuda grass really doesn't grow in full shade. So after all that hay breaks down, you can start to chop and drop those pioneer trees into homegrown wood mulch and start to add in your your food-producing trees, bushes, and vines. So what I'd probably suggest is to get the trees you need now, pot them up, get herbicide-free hay ASAP, spread it out about a foot thick, add a little bit of manure on top if you can, maybe another four-inch layer thick of hay, Wet it all down, cover that all with clear plastic to solarize the hay, and essentially what you're doing is you're sheet composting everything in place. And you can make, you know, a good two to four inches of nice, good compost on that whole area by solarizing it like that. And then you'll uncover it, wait for everything to cool off, and then plant the now leafed out and growing trees. It might be early summer now into the new uh, cooled compost layer and soil. 
I'm stressing the cooled part because it'll get like 160 degrees in there and you don't want to plant those trees in there at 160 degree soil temperature. So actually take the temperature of the soil. And then uh, after they're planted, water them all in really well and then mulch the new hay all around them to retain moisture. And then you need to get out there pretty much every day looking for Bermuda grass shoots popping up and either cover those shoots with wet cardboard or yank them out or uh, put more hay or something to prevent it from getting sunlight. You can choke it out. It takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of material to do. And if you're having trouble keeping up with it, well, just use some herbicide on the glove, you know, that little trick to help get the job done. A little bit of grass isn't going to be a big deal, but you just don't want to let it get a real foothold because it will quickly turn into just a absolute tree-choking mess and slow down your progression into a forest. But once those trees canopy out in a few years, you should be able to choke out the last of the Bermuda grass and have yourself pretty much all of the homegrown wood mulch that you can handle. So I hope that answer helps. If you are interested in some of those quick-growing mulch trees, then you should check out my last remaining tree package that I have available over at rareplantstore.com. I'm Nick Ferguson with Homegrown Liberty and Rare Plant Store. Do good things. So here's my option B, option C, I guess, right? Third option. Uh, Straw. But wouldn't straw have all the problems of hay? No. No, it wouldn't. Here's why. Number one... Most of the straw that you can obtain in this this country is not sprayed with herbicide. I'll say that again. It's not sprayed with herbicide, and, and here's why. Um, we don't have GMO barley or wheat or anything like that yet, and, and, and all the talk about it, it's not happened. And what that means is that we can't just go out and spray herbicide on wheat or spray herbicide on barley, et cetera. Um, and most of the production has moved to no-till, and... While there is some herbicide being used, it's pretty minimal in the production of grain. It, it, more so than just about anything else that we're producing. When it comes to hay pasture, a lot of hay pasture is sprayed with broadleaf herbicides. That's the stuff that Nick's talking about. It doesn't kill grasses. It kills broadleaf weeds. Um, a, a lot of it's heavily fertilized, and it's very, not sprayed much at all. It's irrigated, especially stuff that's like coastal Bermuda and stuff like that. And so... One of the big issues is if you're using hay, you're probably going to be growing grass where you're trying to kill grass. As you know, that's part of what Nick was saying. So what happens when we use straw? Well, there will always be some some uh, residual grain in straw, and we'll always get some grass-like growth. But we'll, it will always inevitably be an annual wheat, barley, rice, maybe what have you, and. Compared to most hay, before at least anybody think that what I'm talking about here is completely devoid of any potential herbicide, compared to most hay, it will probably have a lot less because it doesn't require it because we're not maintaining a perennial system. When you're, when you're growing hay, you're in general maintaining a perennial system at a very low point in succession. What I mean by that is if you have a place where it rains, okay, and you have a field, which is where most hay is grown, in a place where it rains and you have fields, and you don't do anything, in 10 years you will have a, a, a scrub forest. And in 25 years we'll, you'll have midterm growth hardwoods and softwood forest. It will turn into a forest. 
So to maintain a field, we must cut and we must knock back woody perennials. And that is what hay pasturing is all about. If we're trying to grow barley and wheat, we're going to cut it every season and we're going to seed it. Whether we plow it or not, that's what we're going to do. Additionally, we're not going to be spraying herbicide on wheat or barley with one exception I'll talk about in a second. It's just not as common, as, especially as it used to be, and it's not as common as people ever thought either. We're going to harvest that grain and we're taking the waste product as straw. It's actually getting more expensive and harder to find, though, um, because of no-till, which is a good thing unless you're looking for straw. But if you can get straw, you will have less of all the problems Nick brought up. I would see, though, about wood chips. The whole chip drop thing sounds like a great idea. If it works for you, fine. But there have to be people in your area trimming trees. Those people must exist. They are using tripper shredders. It is the only way to do the job. So there is wood chips being made in your backyard. Those wood chips are going somewhere. Find out who's doing that, and instead of worrying about a website that most of those people don't even know exists, contact them directly. And you may all of a sudden find out you can have all the wood chips you want. You should also check with things like sawmills and stuff like that if there's any kind of timber operations going around uh, around you. And it may be the case that if you'll drive a truck down there, they'll load it up for free to get rid of it. There, there may be an option for woody material because here's the biggest thing in all this. You can absolutely use straw, hay, stuff like that to encourage a fungal environment. But it will never be as fungal dominated as a woody material. And the biggest kick that you get when it comes to establishing forest-type systems from woody material is it's, it's a fungal-dominated breakdown. And nothing you do will ever balance that scale. That will always be your eventual limitation. But also then, in final, remember this. A, fallen grows on a, fallen, a forest grows on a fallen forest. Overplant trees, especially the fast-growing, low-value trees, and don't worry about if they're all nitrogen-fixing or not, and chop and drop and chop and, chop and, chop and drop and chop and drop and chop and drop. What beats out grass is shade. If you plant enough trees and favor the long-term trees but continuously drop your short-term trees... Eventually, your long-term trees will canopy out. Your short-term trees will be gone, and you won't have grass because grass doesn't grow inside a forest, if that makes sense. That, and so what we, we need to remember is, regardless of how we do our initial establishment of, of a forest, what we're trying to do if we're trying to fast-track a forest, we need to build a forest that falls quickly. Now, that doesn't mean that everything we plant falls quickly, but most of what we plant. We plant more of the things that will fall, and we help them fall. And that's what feeds the soil, that's what feeds the fungus, and that's what eventually establishes the forest. So, in the end, as long as you can do whatever you need to do to get your trees up over that grass, your trees become your source of mulch. Well, let's take another one. This one on the stool of happiness. 
Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the SimpleLifeNow.com, where we discuss all things making your life better. That's why it's called the Simple Life. But simple doesn't mean easy. Remember that. Real quick, guys, you're going to hear this the day before the Mother News Fair in Belton, Texas, and you're not too far away if you're live if you're around Jack or you're just in Texas, want to come see us. Jack will be speaking there as well, which will be fun for me. Um, but today, I want to talk about some of the things I talk about at the fair, kind of give you an introductory. For those who are new to me or some of you who haven't listened to me in a while, I have the three-legged stool of the simple life, and it is the heart of my philosophy and what I teach. It'll sound incredibly simple, and some will be going, oh, Captain Obvious, but I'll tell you, these three things are difficult to accomplish. Again, simple doesn't mean easy. The first leg leg of the stool is finding optimal health. Now, that one you should have known. If you guys follow me, you know I'm the health guy. I pound health all the time. It was my first company out of the government, and it's because, A, we're losing the battle in health in America. We are by far the unhealthiest country in the world. B, and the second part is health determines everything in your life. It's going to, you want to go in a bad direction, be really unhealthy. You want to go in a good direction, be healthy. But that doesn't mean health is the end all because you can be an a-hole and be a healthy a-hole. So there's more to it, but it definitely helps because most unhealthy people are unpleasant because they don't feel good. I know this firsthand. I've been there. Been a crabby little guy, just not happy in life, right? And a lot of it had to do with my health to include health is mental state. It's everything, all right? Mind, body, soul. Second leg is finding financial freedom. And the reason I hesitate, because people think, oh, okay, I just need to make a couple million dollars. No, that's not what this is about. It's about primarily being debt-free. You can make all the money in the world. You can make $5 million a year, but if you spend $5 million plus a year, it does you absolutely no good unless you're really good at hedging other people's money. But if something goes wrong, guess what? Those are all the people who go bankrupt, debt-free. It is a huge, huge factor. I was debt-free for a lot of my early life, and I got caught in the typical consumerism model of America, and just I noticed a Big difference. I've been debt-free for quite a long time now, almost a decade. I've had some debt here and there, but the rule is if I can pay it off in 12 months or less, that's okay. And I've used it to leverage things, to get my off-grid house done, things like that. A little different. I'm talking long-term, life-sucking debt. Debt Debt-free. The third leg in the stool is life purpose. That's a pretty open philosophy and question there. What I mean by life purpose is doing doing something that you would do even if you didn't get paid. Now, I don't want to go woo-woo on you too far. I know that good feelings don't pay the bills and feed you. I get that. But in order to find satisfaction in life and to truly be happy and free, those who find their life purpose and figure out a way to turn that into a living are the people who I found to be the happiest to include myself. I, I do all three of these things. Uh, I'm the happiest I've ever been in life. I, that's what I mean. It is the simplest. These are the three simplest things you can do 
But guess what? Most people today don't even do one, get one of them dialed in, let alone all three. So this is why I preach the three-legged stool. Is It's a simple philosophy that everyone can agree upon, that these are good things. Not only that, but again, you can accomplish all three of these, and not one of them cost you a dime. It doesn't cost you money to be healthy. People think it does. It doesn't. You actually save a lot of money. Read my my financial freedom book. I go into great detail on that. That these are things you are in your power. Free will. I always talk about free will a lot now. You decide the action and decisions in your life. These are three action items. You need to decide to do them. That's the cost. And then you need to execute them. Not kill them. You need to put a plan in play and, and keep at it. These three, the three-legged stool never ends. That's another thing. About great things that cha- you change in life for the betterment of your life. You work on them until that very last day. Well, there's my little soapbox introduction to the simple life. You can hear a lot more about the simple life at the Belt and Mother News Fair. Hope you guys enjoy this and uh, keep chasing that three-legged stool. You'll catch it. On that third stool leg, and I was interested to see how Gary, when he said there were three st- uh, legs of the stool, I was interested to see if he'd get this in there, and he kind of did, but I'll just expand on it. Uh, the Finding satisfaction is highly related to what I would say almost is a fourth leg of the stool, and that is the freedom to pursue whatever is most important to you. So, you know, you can say that that's part of financial freedom or or what have you, but in the end, I think that it's very difficult for people to be happy in a situation where what they most want to do is they are prevented from doing. And whether that be by regulation, societal norms, whatever it is, self-imposed, it doesn't matter. So I think one of the things that people really need to be mindful of as they seek a life that makes them happy is that you must design freedom into your life. There's a lot that comes from the things Gary talked about, but there's a lot that comes from things that are simple as geography and where you choose to live. It amazes me that I'll hear people tell me how much they want to do gardening, homesteading, whatever, but the HOA won't let them. And I'm like, so does is there no no ability whatsoever to sell your home and move somewhere else? Well, I don't want to move to like a totally different state or anything like that. Well, it, it, assuming that the state itself is not a problem, then no one said you had to. Well, you just can't find a place without an HOA. Bullshit. <laughs> Bullshit. I mean, I love people telling me that. I'm like, oh, here's a house without an HOA. Here's a house without an HOA. Do you have a four-bedroom house about 2,200 square feet? Yeah, there's one just like your house right here that costs less than your house you could get if you sold it. It's only 14 miles from where you live now. Hell, your kids be in the same school, and it don't have an HOA. So what kind of bullshit are you feeding me? And so all I'm saying is I don't want to turn this into an HOA rant. I had one good rant today already. Um, What I'm saying more of is to make sure you're designing lifestyle freedom into this life that you're building. And that doesn't always mean you have to live out in the middle of nowhere in the sticks. It doesn't always mean you have to go buy land for $200 an acre out in the middle of West Texas where you can't get into water. There are places that aren't even very far from where people have no freedom, where you have lots of freedom. I live in one. I live in one. 
I live in the perfect spot in the urban rural fringe. People ask me sometimes, Jack, with all the freedom that you, you have from financial independence and all the flexibility that you have, why did you pick a property with so much rock on it? Because what it gave me was more important than that there's rock on it. I've seen people build gardens and parking lots, okay? <laughs> so I can figure out how to grow stuff. What I have here is the ability to do anything I want to do at all. I don't have any codes. I don't have any zoning. I don't have shit. I can do anything I want to do. And people that I could almost hit their house with a slingshot, not quite, but I could almost hit their house with a slingshot, have all that shit. Be strategic in your choices of geography, guys. It has as much to do with these other three legs as anything else, the ability to do what you want. And yes, financial freedom will give you a lot of ability to do what you want. But I know people who are very financially free, but they are, they are geographically impeded. Some of them need to move to a new state. Some of them need to move to a new county. But some of them need to literally move a mile down the street. And yet they can't seem to see that forest for those trees. That's my ad on that one. Let's go ahead and hit, talk to Derek Bon Pietro about octane, gasoline, and vehicles overheating. Hey, TSP listeners. This is Derek with AffordableDCGenerators.com. Got a question from Michael about some Jeep Wranglers. Let's get into it. I know it is a waste of money to put premium gas in a vehicle that doesn't require it, but could there be a scenario where it would be beneficial? Myself and a friend of mine have JK Wranglers with the 3.6 Pentastar, and both are heavier than stock. Lift tires, body armor, etc. Both have been regeared to compensate for the bigger tires. His Jeep on several occasions has run hot while at freeway speeds climbing a steep grade. His is an automatic, mine's a manual. Also, we live out here in Las Vegas, and when this has happened, ambient air temperature was hovering in the 110s. That is hot. Mine has never done this, but I am concerned since I will be towing for a move soon. He did have a dealership check out his Jeep after this, and they stated nothing was wrong with it and not to worry about it unless the temp gauge gets near the red. Don't know the actual temp of the engine, but the gauge is halfway between normal operating temp and the red zone of the gauge. Would there be any benefit to use premium to possibly help stave off engine knock, help engine, the engine run cooler during these high loads, and high temperature scenarios? Worth trying the premium fuel? Could it make things worse? Michael out in Las Vegas. Well, Michael, I think the direct answer on this one is probably going to be a no. I don't think this particular scenario, going to a premium level fuel, is going to lower engine temperatures. Typically, the only thing you're going to get out of premium fuel uh, is that higher output engines, you're typically going to see some kind of designation, high output, or the vehicle is going to have aggressive ignition timing and it's going to be looking for higher octane fuel to get more power. That would be a situation where you might want to use premium fuel if the manufacturer recommends it. Uh, a lot of new vehicles have turbochargers and direct fuel injection, and even though, according to the manual, you can get away with running regular 87 octane, putting the premium allows the ECM to kind of start feeding a little more boost and ignition timing and get the more power out of that premium fuel, but I don't think it's going to necessarily help with engine temperatures. The Jeep JK runs hot plain and simple. Uh, it's a very small engine bay, 
it's cramped, it doesn't have really good airflow. I mean, the vehicle's quite a brick going down the road. And then you start adding things like all of those accessories that weigh a lot and tend to move air around in a non-factory manner. Like when you put a bumper and a winch and some fog lights on the front, it really messes up the airflow, not to mention the extra weight. So yeah, when you're a Jeep, things are tough, especially once you start modifying them. But the 3.6 or the JK for that matter, are kind of uh, notorious for running a little on the warm side. So a lot of guys are starting to see 220, 230 as a normal range and even bumping up to 240, maybe 245. Now, let's stop right here and have the conversation about temperature gauges. We call them idiot gauges because that's pretty much where they're at. That's the level of information they give you. They're terrible. So don't necessarily think if the gauge is moving around a little bit that the vehicle's starting to overheat. They're really bad. They're they're numb. The best number you're going to get is on your EVIC, which is the little display underneath, I think, the speedometer or the tack. You should be able to toggle through it on certain models and get the actual engine temperature. And this is what's coming off of the temp sensor that's in the engine that the engine computer uses, which is super accurate. If you don't have access to that, you can get um, like an OBD2 plug that goes into it and connects Bluetooth to your phone, and there's a bunch of apps you can get that'll give you that live data, or you can get a tuner that plugs in that gives you a screen up on the up on the dash. Um, that's going to be the most accurate number, and that's the one to go by, not the gauge. And if you're hovering around 240, 245, I don't think I would sweat it on this vehicle. They're they're kind of known for running warm. Don't start putting colder thermostats in or anything like that and messing it up. Um, just make sure the coolant's in good shape. Make sure you don't have a blocked radiator with some debris maybe from a mudding trip or something like that uh, where it's going to get caked up in there and, and kind of affect the airflow through the fins. So I'd, I'd be focusing more on that. So I'm really happy that you guys have lower gears than stock because what that does is when you put a numerically higher which is a deeper ratio in the axle, uh, for listeners that aren't familiar with it, you're, you're kind of like shifting gears on the bicycle, and it allows you to to drive with those heavier loads a little bit easier, And even though it does kind of knock off your top speed or it compensates for larger tires. It definitely makes a little bit of lighter work for the engine. That's probably going to be your, your biggest card to play right there, is that you're geared, you've compensated for the weight and the bigger, uh, taller tire. Really just pay attention to the temperature, uh, get a, get a scanner, a quick plug-in scanner for the OBD2 port or pull it up on your dash if you can, if you have that particular model and really just follow the temp. And if you see it climbing above the 245, just back off. I mean, it's basically no different than any other vehicle pulling a load, pulling a, you know, trying to pull a grade where you're looking at the temps. You know, if it was a diesel, you'd be looking at your EGT, the temp in the exhaust. And once you hit a certain point, you really got to reduce speed because you're overworking the engine at that point. The engine's telling you it's running too hot trying to trying to do what it needs to do or what you're commanding it to. So if you start creeping above 245, you got to lift. Um, clicking it down a gear, if it's an automatic, uh, taking it out of overdrive, you know, or bumping, bumping down to uh, fourth gear, fifth gear, because uh, I think you have a six-speed, certainly certainly helps that and obviously bringing the rpms up lowering the throttle angle and just getting the heat load out of the engine bay will we'll keep that temp in check and yeah you got to reduce speed but that's kind of the name of the game now there are some things you can kind of do to the vehicle to modify there are some louvers you can put on the hood uh i don't have personal experience putting any on a jeep jk to see if they actually work i know when you start cutting holes in hoods and things like that you're really messing with the pressure and the airflow in the engine bay. Uh, there's actually a lot of engineering that goes into getting that air to flow through the radiator across the engine and then down the firewall out the bottom of the vehicle. So when you start modifying things from stock, you could, you could potentially mess that up. Now, 
a company called AEV Conversions. You might be familiar with them. They do a lot of really cool stuff with suspension and Hemi swaps and Jeeps, and they, they're a really close partner to um, to the Jeep manufacturer. So they sell a product. It's called the JK Heat Reduction Hood. Uh, it's 875 on their website. They claim that it will reduce engine temps by a few degrees. Um, you know, and being that you're in Las Vegas, that might be worth your while to spend some money there. 875 is a lot. I'm sure it's pretty big package it comes in so it's going to be expensive to ship and then you're talking you're going to pay somebody to paint it so they're going to color match it and then you know you might be able to do it yourself because it's a pretty pretty simple job to do um, with a buddy with an extra set of hands but you know you're still going to be into this for probably 13 14 1500 bucks by the time everything is said and done so you know if you're willing to back off a little bit i'd say just keep running it if if you feel like it's the temperature is getting out of control maybe look into one of those hoods i'd probably try to stay away from any of the cheesy cutouts that you put in the, the hood unless there's a lot of people that have really good success with them because you're just modifying things away from stock so good luck with your engine temps uh, i hope maybe you look into that hood or you get a little more confidence those things are designed to run 240 which you know 20 30 years ago is probably a little excessive and it would be in the danger zone but you know that's what the manufacturer wants to keep at a certain temp so just got to run it thanks for the question michael good luck with those wranglers AffordableDCGenerators.com, home of the affordable DC power supply and portable generator setup. Spring will be here shortly, and boats and RVs and every other toy will be making their way back onto the scene. Make sure you got an affordable DC generator to keep your batteries topped off. Check out the YouTube channel. There will be some new stuff coming in the next couple of weeks as the vehicle is fully outfitted for the off-roading trip coming up here. So there will be some great stuff on that channel. If you subscribe, you'll see it coming. Take care, guys. All right, great stuff there. And, and I, I am in the firm camp of higher octane gas exists only to sell gas to people who want to pay more money for their gas in almost, almost every uh, individual situation. It will never be the thing that fixes the problem that you're trying to solve. Anyway, John Pugliano now with a lightning round on 401ks, investing, being conservative once you hit retirement age, being smart with your money and preserving your wealth. John, take it away. Hey, TSP, we got a bunch of questions here. Let's see how many of them I can get through. Uh, several of these are related to 401ks, so let's try and group them all together. First one is from Chris in Indiana. He's switching jobs. He wants to know how to roll his current 401k over to a Roth IRA. Chris, the process is very simple. Uh, you need to be real clear about your terminology, though. Uh, and and be, I say that because you're talking about rolling a 401k into a Roth IRA. That can be done, but there would be tax consequences if this is not already in a 401k Roth. You didn't say that it was, so I'm assuming it isn't. So what you might want to do is roll your 401k into a traditional IRA, That's a seamless rollover. There's no tax consequences for that. And then once you've done that and you understand your tax situation, if you truly do want to move this to a Roth IRA, then you can do what's called a Roth conversion. But any money that you're rolling from the 401k or an IRA into a Roth is going to be taxed as ordinary income. So that's why you want to look into that and make sure that's exactly what you want to do. Otherwise, it's very simple to do the 401k to an IRA. You can call any discount broker. Um, you know, I personally use Charles Schwab. Use whoever you like. Call them up. Open up your IRA. Get in touch with your 401k company. They're going to have a form to fill out, and you can easily have that money transferred and rolled over to the new custodian. Next question comes from Eric, and he says, what should I do with my 401k? 
He, too, is switching jobs. He has a 401k. He'd like to take more control of it and try and manage it himself. So, uh, again, Eric, uh, get on the phone. Call up a discount broker. They'll walk you through the process of opening up an IRA. Once you've done that, you can contact the administrator of your 401k plan and simply fill out the paperwork with them and have the money transferred over to the new custodian. Eric, in your question, you uh, mentioned a couple of discount brokers, E-Trade, TD Ameritrade. You know, you say, hey, you've heard bad stories about them. You're worried about financial liars. Listen, if you want to take responsibility for your money, you have to take responsibility for your money. So have people had bad experience at discount brokers? Well, I'm sure they have. But in most cases, unless you're relying on the discount broker to provide you financial management services, then you're making the decisions on your own and any bad decisions are on you. You can manage your own money, but it takes discipline and knowledge, and that's not going to come overnight. You can open up your IRA account, transfer your 401k over to it, let the money sit in some type of an income earning and very safe account, like some type of a cash equivalent uh, money market fund or something along those lines, and wait for the right opportunities to come along and move into them as you build your knowledge. And kind of along with this question, Eric asked about a friend of his that invests in real estate. And yes, Eric, you can set up an account where you can use your retirement money to invest directly in real estate. I think that's what you're talking about. But again, just because you have a friend that's making money in that, is that something you know anything about? Before you jump into that, I'd encourage you to park your money somewhere safe, learn about the process, and then slowly start doing those things and check and make sure your system works. Here's another 401k question from Dan. Dan is retiring. He has about 150k in his 401k. He's asking if he should roll that 401k over to an IRA and, you know, kind of what he should be doing with it. Well, Dan, you have a really good pension. And so from the little bit of information you've given me, it doesn't look like you necessarily need to tap into this $150,000 uh, to maintain your lifestyle. Uh, you're also 69 years old. Here's what I worry about with your question. You're not really asking me what you should be investing your money in or what type of quality blue chip dividend paying stocks you should be buying or what mix you should be having between high grade investment bonds versus high quality dividend paying stocks. No, you're simply asking, should you roll your money from a 401k to an IRA? Dan, that's really the wrong question. A 401k or an IRA are simply tax deferred retirement savings accounts. They're the vehicle you invest in, but they're not the investment themselves. For now, I think you should really educate yourself on what you want that $150,000 to do, what type of a return you want to get on it, and then pursue that through the most risk-free investment option, which is probably going to be some type of a very high-quality, short-to-mid-term investment-grade bond fund. In fact, you may want to go even more conservative and ladder this money into some really high-quality FDIC-insured certificates of deposit in a traditional bank account that can still be done under the guise of an IRA account. So it would still be tax-deferred, but it would be in a very high-quality, very secure FDIC-insured account. The reason I'm stressing the security and the risk-free nature of these investments for you to consider is that, number one, you really do have some good pension money coming in that you're going to live off of, so you don't have to immediately tap into this retirement savings. And then, number two, you're 69 years old. I'm assuming you don't have a great deal of risk tolerance. And, you know, looking forward over the next five to ten years, I think it's highly likely that we're going to see a major pullback in the stock market. That's probably not something that you want to go through when you're in your 70s. 
And so in your case, where I think you have some limited investment experience at your age, I would be going for safety more than anything. You also mentioned that you have a mortgage, and it would probably be a really good idea for you to start considering taking some of this retirement money and using that to start paying down your mortgage. That way you have the security of owning your own home. And then, of course, any money you're not paying in mortgage interest is effectively money you're paying yourself. Our final question comes from SPR61. He says, what are your recommendations for paying off credit card debt when a person has a small savings account and is on workman compensation? He goes on to give some details about how he's been injured at work. He's on workman's compensation. He is going to be able to return back to work, but probably in a limited earning capacity. He's also gone through a divorce and been stuck with, you know, the mortgage and credit card debt and things of that nature. And he does have some money saved up in cash savings, some retirement savings, some gold and silver. And he wants to know whether he should pay off that credit card debt or wait a little bit till he gets on his feet. Well, I think maybe a little bit of both. You definitely want to leave yourself with enough cash as an emergency fund to keep you stable enough so that you don't end up putting more money on credit cards because, you know, that's just a never-ending spiral. So I think you should keep your $5,000 in cash and only tap that for emergencies to avoid putting more money on your credit card. The last money that I would touch would be your retirement savings because that's also going to have a tax consequence with it and perhaps a penalty as well. And it's also one of those kind of things when once you take the money out, you can't easily get it back in. And you do want to be thinking about your long-term retirement. So any type of retirement or tax-deferred money, I'd tap that the least. But you do mention the gold, the silver, and also a multitude of guns. Well, as far as the gold and silver, why did you put that away? You put that away for an emergency. You're likely in an emergency now. So yes, I would consider selling some of that, particularly with gold and silver at, at pretty nice market prices right now. Consider maybe selling that, taking a profit, paying off your credit card debt. Or even better yet, where I would first start is you mentioned you have a multitude of guns. And that's what I'd be looking for to sell first, to raise the cash, to pay off this credit card debt. The guns are something nice to have. You're probably emotionally attached to them, but you're probably not in a position right now where you can afford them. That credit card debt isn't going to go away. You know, you're likely probably paying 18% interest on it at those kind of rates before long. And that 13000 is going to turn into 15000 and then 20000 And you just want to get rid of it. Start selling some of your toys first. Try and knock that debt off. If you can't, I'd go to the gold and silver next. But make sure you leave yourself a cash reserve until you get on your feet so you don't fall into the trap of credit card debt again. Well, hey, guys, as always, I appreciate your questions. Keep sending them in. This is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealthsteading Podcast. Good stuff from John. My only addition there is he was talking about how if you don't have a 401k that is a Roth 401k and you have, want to roll into a Roth IRA, it costs you a bunch of money to do it and you get screwed over by the government. So my addition there is always Roth, always Roth, always Roth, always Roth. If you have an option and you're doing any kind of investment and you have a Roth option, take the Roth option, period, the end, infinity. I don't care what you say, na 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 Anyway, all right, let's talk. I'm in a good mood, obviously, you can tell. Let's talk about why I'm in a good mood. And I don't mean just today, I mean in general. Um, I probably am the most optimistic voice in the world of survival and preparedness. And it's, it, I think sometimes it really strikes people 
from left field when they find this show. They're like, oh, great, gloom and doom, yeah! They're going to scare me and tell me about zombies and the pathogenic plague and we're going to get a bunker and what the hell? This guy's talking about planting trees and cooking food and hunting and fishing and homesteading and starting businesses. What the hell? And I think then people bifurcate into two camps. One, oh, no, i got to go find some gloom and doom, fear-mongering, you know, prepper porn shit somewhere else. Or, uh, wow, I, this is kind of a better way. Make your own way and the others will follow, right? Right out of the song. And this has always been my brand of preparedness. If you go back to, I mean, some of the really crappy audio, I mean, in the car, yeah, but I mean, before I even had the headset, when I used to have the recorder, like first week I had the recorder laying in my lap with no microphone. That's how I started this show. Even then you hear an optimistic voice. Even then, I think it was in the first week that I came up with the most clunky but accurate tagline other ever, helping you live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. That's about as optimistic as you can be in the world of preparedness. And over the years, I've become more and more optimistic. And I thought, you know, with there is like this, in, in our space right now, there is this desire It is a, it's not a pragmatic, logical thing. It is an absolute clinging to a desire to see, for instance, the coronavirus is the end of the world biblical plague. And there are people that are in this space that have been in this space as long as I have that, honest to God, are seizing upon it to capitalize and to make money with it, even though they're claiming it's the end of the world as we know it. And it just isn't. Is it a good thing? Should we all be like, yay, coronavirus, let's get our limes out and drink a beer? No, no. It does have a potential to cause some real upset in the world. But overall, it's it's not going to make anybody in America turn off an Xbox. And I'm not worried about it because if it becomes a significant problem, I absolutely have the ability to shelter in place for a long period of time and limit exposure because I prepare. So one reason that I am optimistic is because I'm prepared. And I think if you're actually prepared, then it's, it's easy to be optimistic because most things that can happen, there's something you can do about it, or they're big enough that it won't matter, you'll be dead anyway. And since we could all get hit by a gravel truck tomorrow, those things are things that we don't need to sit around really worrying about. So I think one of the reasons that we have so many people in the prepper space that are not optimistic is they're not preppers. They're people that talk about being prepared, that talk about the prepper porn side of things that like the idea of being afraid, but they don't actually take the fundamental steps to be prepared, at least significantly enough to deal with the things that could likely happen. And therefore, when they're put into a reality check with one of those things from something like coronavirus, the fear reenters and then they freak out. But beyond that, the reason I'm optimistic is I believe in people. And it's easy not to, because boy, if you want to find stupid, you don't have to look very far. In fact, in an election year, stupid in the gene pool swims on the, stupid does the back stroke on the top of the gene pool in election years. Boy, you see stupid swimming on the surface of the gene pool in an election year. But you see it all the time. And it's not just, Young people eating Tide Pods, which that lasted a couple weeks. We probably need to stop kicking that one. It's just so easy to do. 
It's every generation, when they were young and when they're old. They're stupid everywhere. But you know what else there is? They're smart. There's a lot of smart. I think it was in uh, Men in Black that Tommy Lee Jones' character said, a person is smart, people are stupid. And But people are made up of persons. And when I look at the world today, I see people innovating in every meaningful way. You know, down in, in Gary Collins mentioned the Mother Earth News Fair. I'm going to be down there talking about uh, container gardening and uh, hydroponics. Both of these are great solutions to let people begin to start feeding themselves in one way or another. Neither of them are going to save the planet. Hydroponics will not save the planet, but hydroponics is a piece of a whole bunch of things that keep our life worth living in spite of so many problems that we have. It solves a lot of problems. It doesn't solve them all. doesn't fix everything. solves a lot of problems for a lot of people in a lot of places. We call that a solution. You know, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good is something that we really need to actually start meaning instead of just saying. We find things that are like, here, this thing solves eight problems, but there's three big ones it doesn't solve, so we shouldn't do it. Go stick your head up your own ass and die. I mean, really. I mean, it's, it's, that's why I'm becoming optimistic, because the people that are the naysayers, people are starting to have that attitude towards them in general. Well, that's fine. You go over there and cry in the corner. You go over there and stomp your feet. You go over there and whine and bitch and grime and grouse. I'm over here doing something. I'm doing a thing, and guess what? I figured out that I can do my thing, and you really can't stop me. So I'm going to keep doing my thing, and I'm going to keep making my case. And you know, a lot of the things that are very solution-oriented, that people are screaming, yelling, don't work. Do you know why they're screaming they don't work? Because they don't want them to work, and they're afraid that they do. People fear success that's counter to their belief system. The number one group of people that hate hydroponics, small farmers that farm profitable crops in soil. Number one group of people that hates it. Most other people are like, well, that's cool, but nah, I don't care. People that hate it, that's who hates it. Do you know why they hate it? <laughs> Because it competes with them. They hate it for the same reason that elevator operators hated elevators that didn't require elevator operators. Except they don't need to. See, The elevator was such an obvious thing that there was no real need of a person to sit there and push buttons for you. <laughs> I'll work it for you. So you can't figure out how to get to floor 18 by pushing the one that says 18. The first elevators had kind of a start-stop button. I guess people couldn't be dependent on to make that. But when they automated it, like it was obvious there would be no more elevator operators. So I'm sure the elevator operators union, and I'm sure there was such a thing, opposed the automated elevator. But hydroponics isn't going to put the dirt farmer out of business. But it might put a dirt farmer out of business, or two, or three. That's progress. Or maybe that dirt farmer needs to figure out something else to do with the dirt. Something that's more has more value from the dirt. Who knows? But technologies competing with each other is not something that makes me pessimistic. It's something that makes me optimistic. The fact that I hear from a dozen people a week or more that have planted trees because of what we do here on TSP. It makes me incredibly optimistic. Not because, oh, it's what I'm doing. It's because, so you're telling me that just some jerk with a microphone that you can buy for a hundred bucks, a couple hundred dollars worth of hosting, you know, a month, 
podcasting from his office full of fish tanks can get people to plant trees? That's all that it takes. That's literally all that it takes. I'm telling you, it's well over in, in, in 12 years of what we've done here. It's well over a million trees. I have no idea how many, but it's millions of trees. I know that is, is like that is a low end estimate, two, three million trees that we have either directly or indirectly caused to be planted. So you're telling me that uh, one guy with a freaking Samsung $100 microphone and free recording software can get over a million trees planted? Gee, what can somebody who actually knows what they're doing get done? I mean, there is so much to be optimistic about it. What about all that automation you and Pugliano keep talking about and all the jobs that are going to be lost? Yeah, that's going to happen. Be ready for it. But what opportunities do that, does that present for you? We don't tell you that so you'll go, oh boy, I better get my bunker. We tell you that so you'll like not be the guy that's 47 and caught off guard when your job goes away. That you'll actually have a plan to capitalize on these magnificent shifts in society. Society is not going to have everything fixed by technology alone. You know, but what's his name? Um, James Howard Kunstler, right? Would be a perfect example of the curmudgeon that doesn't see the forest for the trees. Too much magic. There's no technological solution. No, there is no technological solution. There's thousands of technological solutions. And we need to embrace all of the ones that work for the things that they work for, but not turn our back on the traditional. Gee, like modern survivalism. I've said from the very beginning that the, the whole point of what we do when we call it modern survivalism is don't not have a GPS. They're great, but still know how to use a map. Know both. And if somebody comes out with something that's better than a GPS, get that too, if you can afford it and if it makes sense for you anyway. We are an incredibly fortunate society. We're incredibly fortunate. This time in history has more flux and change going on. And all of the things that suck... You can't have this level of innovation, change, and opportunity without having some suck. You can't. The two go hand in hand. Trust me. The same way that you look back sometimes and think, I was born out of time. If only I had been here during the age of Western settlement. If I could have been one of those mountain men. Or if only whatever time you think of, a couple hundred years from now, there will be a young man or young woman, and they will sit in a future that we can't even conceive of, and they will envy you. And just like you, they will be both right and wrong. They will see the tremendous opportunity that you have right now for what it was in their time. And they will fail to see the tremendous opportunity that they have in their here and now. Because here's the thing about the here and now. It's all you got. No matter when your here and now is, it's all you've got. It's when you get to do something. You get this time. This is your dash. Look around you. This is your dash. This is what you get. 
It's all you get. It's all you get. Even if there's magnificent medical advancements in the next 10 to 15 years, and the average human life expectancy becomes 120 or 130 or 140, even if you get that much extra time, which you probably won't, but even if you do, now is what you got. So why am I optimistic? Because now is what I have. And I can either be optimistic while I'm here and do something while I'm here that matters and make a difference, realizing that one guy with a microphone, among other things, has made over a million trees get planted and just be like, holy shit, and I'm not done yet. Or I can sit here and go, it's all going to fall apart. It's all going to be gone. Uh, I wish I was born in 1840. Why? So I could die of a common illness that we can easily treat today? Would that have been great? That would have been awesome, right? No. I get now. I get today. I get tomorrow. And I have no guarantee how many tomorrows I get, but I am damn well going to own every single one of them and wring every damn thing out of them because it's the only way I know how to live. I invite you to take part in that level of optimism because it's all you have. You don't get any more. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you that you can help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. I don't have an item of the day for you today, but whenever you shop online, you can shop there and you help us. And let me springboard right into our song of the day. So usually my songs come from a guy named John Adam, a really cool dude. He puts together all these great playlists for me. And this week with having some rewinds, three of the shows being rewinds, I decided I don't want to – because he puts things in like – grouped weeks and stuff and they kind of all run together and then they get split and you break everything on them so just like we'll just push his new song list out one week till we go back to our regular schedule programming and i'll pick my own songs uh for the two live shows this week today's song i thought of this ending segment i just did and what song most typified what i just said and it's a song by a band called five for fighting And it's called World. What kind of world do you want? What kind of world do you want? The song talks about basically Acme's build a world. Remember Wile E. Coyote and the Acme catalog? And you could order like, like a rocket ship to chase the Roadrunner or whatever. Order whatever you wanted from an Acme catalog and it would show up. What if you could order a kit and it said... Build your world. Like SimCity or some sort of like that, except it's in the real world. You could build a world that's anything you want it to be. Here's the key. That's what you have. That's what you have. And I know what you're thinking, all these other people are doing all this other screwed up shit because they have the same freedom. Because they get that. You have to deal with the fact that other people are out building their world. Some in a very similar way to what you want to do and some in a very different way than what you want to do. So what do you do? You seek allies and you go do your thing. And you build your world. And you do it here and now because, as we just said, that's all you get. That's the only chance you have. You don't get to hit rewind. And you damn sure shouldn't wish to hit fast forward. You don't get to hit pause. 
You can watch sci-fi and a guy gets frozen and gets defrosted a couple hundred years in the future and it's either Idiocracy or Star, Star Trek. Nice TV. Don't get to do that. You have now. What kind of world do you want? Build it. With that, I'll be back next weekend with our regularly scheduled programming. It's been Jack Spierko on a Friday with another edition of the Survival Podcast. A time machine, a magic wand, a globe made out of gold. No instructions or commandments. Laws of gravity or indecisions to uphold. Printed on the box I see, Acme's build a world to be. Take a chance, grab a piece, help me to Just starts now.